that their lives would be um, framed by the contents of these psalms. Their lives would be driven and governed not only as they went to worship, but when they went home. Um, But that raises the question, God called them to come to Jerusalem. What Jerusalem are we talking about here? And we know for certain it is the, the uh, literal Jerusalem that, occur, that, that existed um, in the Old Testament times and the New Testament times. But we also recognize that, we're, we, that, that, that these psalms are applicable for you and me because we too are traveling to a Jerusalem. But it's not the Jerusalem in, in Palestine, it's the Jerusalem above. If you think about it, the, the temple was designed to reflect the garden Remember, God closed the Garden of, of Eden with the, the, uh, a flaming sword on the east side. Well, guess how you got into the temple? On the east side. And so that temple is a picture, is, in reality, is God's presence. And you and I right now are longing for that day that we will stand in the presence of God and worship him face uh, to face. So we too are pilgrims living in this land on a journey to Jerusalem. With that, God gave us these psalms. Psalm 120, as we saw last week, addresses a burden. The burden of living in this state of sin and misery, the state of which is characterized by lies and deceits. And the question that is raised, that, that, that naturally comes into your mind if you've meditated long and hard on 120, which starts with, I'm going to, Lord, I call out to you because of the troubles and my troubles. I call out to you, and while I'm with you, I turn to you. In that context, I see the wicked's end, Psalm 73 pattern. And because of that, I want to go out and speak peace, bring the gospel to the world in which I live. But that brings warfare and that brings hardship. And so, just like Jeremiah, we can find ourselves saying, God, don't you care about me? All I'm doing is trying to bring your gospel, your peace to the world in which I, I live. Give genuine help. And all I get for it is flack and difficulty and persecution and hardship. And on top of that, then you have the burdens of the day, like physical and emotional and name it. And so the, 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 the psalmist, God, also recognized that the natural question from Psalm 120 is, Does God care for us? And this Psalm 121 is directly beginning at 120 where it left off and answering the question, the pregnant question asked by 120. Does God care for you? Does God care for you even though your body has failed, even though you've lost your job, even though difficulty and hardship has descended upon you in your life? Does God care for you? This Psalm unanimously says yes. Notice with me God's care. It's found um, throughout this psalm, but I'm going to give you, or, or call you to look, look with me at verse 3b. I'll start with verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you, mark that word, keeps, will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel, mark that word. 5a, the Lord is your keeper. 7a, the Lord will protect you, mark that word. 7b, he will keep your soul. 8a, the Lord will guard your going out. Each one of these verses, six times in eight verses, God says, this text says, God will shamar. He'll keep you. That's the Hebrew word, shamar. And it means simply, to, or it's translated, watch over, protect, preserve, keep, guard. 
used 461 times in the Old Testament. It's a major theme of God's redemptive message to his people. God is protecting you. God is guarding you. God most certainly cares for you. Now, to understand this in its proper light, we got to remember the burden. we got to keep in mind, throughout all this time, all of these psalms, the burden of Psalm 120, 120. And let me, therefore, encourage you to look back at verse 120, verse 1. In my trouble. Now, last week, somehow, in my brain-dead state, I missed that, this uh, a complete word and a couple other words. But let me explain to you what this word means. The word for trouble is, it refers to, to any state or place that is narrow, confining, or, res- or restricted. It speaks of being hampered, hemmed in, and so unable to function fully or freely. So think of a really tight place. When I think of this word... Hebrew is vivid. I want to give you a vivid definition here. 2018, the Thai cave, right? Remember that? The, the soccer players and the coach went splunking as a, 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 a team-building um, exercise. And the Thai rains began early that year. So they're way down deep in the earth, and it started raining massively, and the, the cave filled up, and they were stuck in there. Well, the, 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 the men who were called upon to, be, to lead up the rescue were these uh, men who were world-renowned for their ability to go into caves and, and to splunk, okay? Um, in fact, I saw a documentary on these men. And in this documentary, if it didn't have it, I think it did, but my memory's uh, failing, a, a, a viewer discretion warning, if it didn't have it, it should have. Because it showed footage of these men thousands of feet under the earth. One guy going through, he's filming himself. He's by himself. Maybe there's someone behind, I don't know. But he's filming himself going through a a crevice so narrow that he has to tilt his head sideways to fit his body through. When I watched that, I felt anxious. I felt burdened. I sweated. I felt myself um, repulsed. I had all manner of feelings, as you can imagine, if you saw that. I mean, I'm sitting thinking, what happens if that light goes off? And it just, it just, it just, all of it just frightened me. Brothers and sisters, that's the word here. That's the word in the Hebrew. When you read this word, that should be what is denoted in your mind. In my distress, in my trouble, this world has that impact, that impact upon you and me and God's people. Does it not? This world of lives pushes us down, places us in, at times, places where we feel claustrophobic by the worries and the fears and the dreads and the hardships and, the, and all of uh, the difficulties. That's what this world does. Well, the question is, what does God do when the world's doing that? Well, Psalm 121 says that God shamars. And that word shamar is a word primarily for a guard. Okay? It's the primary word for a, a, one who sets himself up as a guard over his people. So for example, Spurgeon wrote, the word keepeth is also full of meaning. He, he keeps us as a rich man keeps his treasures. As a, as a captain keeps a city with the garrison. As a royal guard keeps his monarch's head. And thus, brothers and sisters, get this. God's answer to the question, do you care for me? The answer is, yes, I care. I have, I have taken the position of a guard over your life, over your soul. Matthew 28, 20. 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. God is with his people. And that tells us that the, that the character of God's um, response of, in 121 is this. We think if God cared for us, he'd take us out of the burdens. But brothers and sisters, Psalm 121, God says, I am not delivering you out of the burdens of this life. I'm going to deliver you in the burdens of this life. I'm going to protect your soul. I'm going to keep you fast. You are not going to to wander. Your soul will not break because I am there. Nothing, no one can touch you, hurt you, or harm you. I, this gloriously good God who loves you so much, I sent my son to die for you. I will ordain things to mold and shape you, certainly. But nothing can touch you. No, 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 nothing can... I'll molest you because uh, um, God is the one who keeps watch over your heart. Incredible. All right, with that then, this psalm is given to express that truth. And it does it through four different stanzas. So this psalm has four stanzas, four different verses. The first verse is a personal testimony of the psalmist. Notice with me, and that testimony is basically this. God care results in unthwartable assistance. Because God cares for us, notice he has unthwartable assistance. With, uh, notice with me verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? This verse is shrouded with a lot of debate because of the word mountain. It's debatable as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, for example, in Scripture, the mountain of Israel, the mountain... The, the, uh, Palestine, geographically, brothers and sisters, has, you have the Mediterranean, then you have what is known as the uh, Shephelah, it's great grazing farming fields, and then you've got the central mountain plateau. That's where Jerusalem was built upon. Well, in this central mountain plateau, what did that denote to God's people? Well, it, was, it could be a very positive thing. Mountains could be could be uh, uh, could denote great things. So, for example, Moses, when after Rephidim and the wilderness wandering, do you remember the Amalekites attacked God's people in the valley, and Moses was up there when he raised his hand. God's people prevailed. Uh, prevailed when he when he dropped them that they didn't. Well, Hor and Aaron had to lift up his hands so that God's people would fight. Well, if you were a soldier fighting in the valley and you lifted your eyes up to the mountain, what would you think? Victory, salvation. Wonderful. So mountains had a positive connotation. Likewise, if you were going back on the songs of ascents from Babylon, and the moment you turn that corner, whenever it was, and you spied that central mountain ridge, you'd see, man, there's Jerusalem, there's the temple, and I'm close to home. So it'd have a very positive connotation. However, if you lived in Palestine, you would know that those mountains had a very negative connotation. The mountains living there uh, throughout all of Old Testament redemptive history was the place where the Canaanites worshipped their foreign gods, primarily Baal. And so the mountains were, um, you, during Jeremiah's day, you could go there and you would see the most heinous, most ugly, gross, debauched worship you can imagine which involved mutilation, which involved child sacrifice. So you think of the mountains, you would think of that. That was a horrible place. That's where the high places were that God's people never tore down. But also the mountains were a famous hiding place for criminals, robbers, and murderers. Now think about These are the mountains which during the Maccabean revolt, God's people successfully fended off the attack of the full Greece army. 
Okay? For however many years that battle went on, the Maccabean revolt, the Greeks got, got, got vanquished in these mountains. That's how treacherous, how difficult it was. Okay, so this, these mountains were formidable, and they were a place where then murderers could hide out. They wouldn't be caught, and then they'd prey upon people who traveled through. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's where the Samaritan was when he got hurt. He's up in those mountains, and he got mugged and left for dead. So is this verse talking about something positive? I lift up my eyes to the glorious mountains, or do I lift up my eyes to those horrible mountains? Well, based on the content of Psalm 121, it's the latter. It's the horrible mountains. Brothers and sisters, the mountains here are a metaphor of the burdens of Psalm 120. I'm going to look at the burdens of my life. I'm going to look at the cancer that has taken me. I'm going to look at the lost job. I'm going to look at the burdens that are pressing upon me. And I'm going to ask a very, a very important question. From whence does my help come? When you look at those things, we would typically say, well, my help comes from technology. My help comes from me and my own devices. I know how to get out of this, this pickle. My help comes from my friends. My help comes from my bank. My help comes from all these earthly resources. The psalmist says, when I look at the burdens of life, where does my help come from? And the answer is, my help comes from the Lord. Let's look at those two words, help and Lord, in verse 2. The word help, ezer. It's a word for support, assistance, or aid, and it primarily denotes in the Old Testament the aid of military attack. The aid that comes from a military defense or attack. So I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, and where does, which tells you that these burdens are, are such a degree, such a serious degree, it requires military intervention. In concept, not literally necessarily, but in concept. I will lift up my, uh, my eyes. I'm not, look, I'm not getting help from those mountains. Where does my help come? My defense, my protection in this world comes from the Lord. Now the Lord, Yahweh, this is the word Yahweh, it's used five times in these eight verses, but the personal pronouns modifying Yahweh another five times. God's name appears in essence ten times in eight verses in this verse with this glorious punctuation, this glorious announcement. Brothers and sisters, you face the burdens of this life. They are faced because God is the one who upholds you. God is the one who stands guard over your soul. Now, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. Every name in the Old Testament of God, Adonai, Elohim, Jehovah Jireh, name them. They all tell us about what God does. They're not describing his person, his essence. They're describing his work. Yahweh is the only name that describes God's essence. So it's his, it's, it, it's his covenant name he gave to Moses. So it, 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 it makes us think of the covenant promises of God to us. But secondly, it's also his transcendency. It, it references to his transcendency that this being, this transcendent holy God who is other than anything you and I know, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, gloriously powerful, unstoppable, unthwartable, that God is your protector. That God is the one who sets up his watch next to your soul at all times. Spurgeon wrote, the purposes of God, the divine attributes, 
the immutable promises, the covenant, ordered in all things and sure, the providence, predestination, and proved faithfulness of the Lord, these are the hills to which we must lift up our eyes, and from these our help must come. He's right on. Brothers and sisters, our help doesn't come from a literal mountain. That little mountain is the burdens of life. We're not going to get help in there. Ultimately, our help comes from the mountain peaks of God's character, who he is and what he is to you and me. Amazing. That is our God. In other words, brothers and sisters, you put those two, those two concepts, Yahweh, this transcendent being, and a soldier standing guard over our souls. You know what comes to your mind? The captain of the Lord of hosts. Do you remember that? manifestation of that in the old testament in joshua god's people have been circumcised they brought up to the palestine they're about ready to are brought up to the east of palestine east of the jordan they're about ready to take the promised land and the first thing that has to happen before they do it is that they get circumcised the entire nation the wilderness they stop circumcising so the entire all the warriors had to be circumcised at their most vulnerable point when they when 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 a, a, a army of of, of eight-year-old kids could win um, Joshua was out and God appeared to him. Let me read the text, Joshua 5. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather, indeed, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord of hosts said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ appeared to Joshua. We, know, we call this a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Appeared to Joshua. And he is, indeed, we know from the New Testament that when, when Moses stood before the burning bush, it was Christ who he stood be, before in his blazing glory. And the whole point is to Joshua, Joshua, I'm going with you. I'm on your side. I'm going to be a soldier in the army. I will lead you into battle. No one, no place, no time, nothing on this earth will be able to prevail against this captain. Well, brothers and sisters, guess what this psalm is saying? That captain is standing guard over your person this moment. Think about that. That is the one who goes with you. And thus, brothers and sisters, I meditate upon this and I say to myself, you know what? Christians go through trials just like non-Christians. Christians get cancer just like non-Christians. Christians lose their jobs just like non-Christians. Christians have all the things that go on in this world just like non-Christians. But you know the difference is? The difference is, is you've got that being standing guard over your soul. And if through the eye of faith you just simply open your eyes I'm not saying you'd visibly behold him, but by faith you would behold him and, and know, lo, he is with you always, even to the end of the earth. When you are under the mountains of the burdens of this life, a thousand feet under, Jesus Christ is there with you. 
If you go to the farthest sea, lo, he is there always. He is there also. You cannot remove yourself as God's people from not only God's presence, but the presence as God's people, the presence of this captain. Now, all this is wonderful. Pie into the sky, perhaps. But it begs a question. How powerful is this man? How powerful is this God? Is is this care really effectual? And that's how verse 2 ends. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This actually is the exact quote found in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. One commentator I read this past week said that that phrase is so important, it's almost another attribute of God, another description of God. Who is God? God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and he's he's the maker of the heavens and the earth. Now, he's not saying it is. We say it's almost. That's how important this phrase is. But, brothers and sisters, if you read this song, we, we pass over that phrase, don't we? And my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, whatever. Let's go on. To do that is a massive mistake. Randy Steele wrote these words of, the, of heaven and earth. The earth with all its diversity, the depths of which man has yet to fully plumb and understand, was created by the Lord. The heavens also were made by God. What did such creation require? It took authority and power to call into being that which does not exist. This is a capability of which we as human beings, ourselves creatures of God's making, cannot even conceive to speak and to call something uh, to being. How can we relate to such power? What analogy shall we use to attempt to grasp this kind of otherworldly authority? But more importantly, what are the implications for us of our God's capacity for such sheer might? The psalmist within context is declaring that God brings his ultimate authority to bear upon our lives as our keeper. So this God who has set up his post next to you, every one of us, this God who stands guard over us, Brothers and sisters, this God is our captain of the host. Um, And how able is he to keep us? The answer of this psalm is that God at all times and in all places brings to bear upon my needs the power that created the universe. That's what this psalm says. He is your helper. In Christ, we are invincible. Incredible. Mortier wrote, in short, God is always in full detailed executive management of the world he created. He leaves nothing to chance. Nothing falls outside his care and attention. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, nor, nor is there a hair on the end, on the head of his children that he does not protect. He is God. Well, then why, brothers and sisters, does God allow us to, to stay in the, the, the burdens? As we'll see in this psalm and the rest of the psalms of ascent, the songs of ascent, because that's where God forges his weapons. Why doesn't God just take us from, this, from the burdens? Why does, he, why does he uphold us and deliver us in them and not out of them? Because, brothers and sisters, that's how weapons are forged. You take metal, 
You heat it up and you bang it, and you heat it up and you bang it, and you heat it up and you bang it. And eventually, once it's formed what you, what you want it to look like, you quench it. And once it's quenched, then you start sawing on it. Then you start filing on it. Then you start, you know, uh, name it. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's doing in our lives as people. He's molding and shaping us to be the people of his, he's a soldier. He's, he's preparing us to be his weapons. But don't miss it. it throughout the entire process, Jesus Christ is intimately um, in your presence, intimately a part of everything you're going through. That's the difference between the believer and the non-believer. Our lives, we don't have a different life necessarily, but we've got a God who goes with us. Glory be to God. Incredible. So that's the psalmist's personal testimony. From this point, the psalm now changes. If you notice with me, verse 3 and 4 and following, we go from the first person testimony to the second person exhortation. So the argument is, this is either another group of people, like a choir, a chorus, speaking to the psalmist. Oh yeah? That's true, but let me give you some more. Or this is the psalmist now speaking to the traveler, having shared his own personal testimony. He's now going to share with you an exhortation. Guys, this is what's true for me. It's true for you too. Now let me exhort you. However we take it, we got the second person, exhortation. Second stanza, it um, basically uh, says this. First of all, God's care is seen in his unthoughtable assistance, one through two. Three through four, God's care is seen in his constant stability. Notice with me verse three. He would allow your foot to slip. Um, that be, um, would you notice when, a, Jew, uh, when a, a pilgrim went to the te- uh, temple from the north or the south, eventually you had to, uh, you had to address the central mountain uh, plateau. You had to scale it. And as I said, this is not just hills. This was a mountain where the Greek armies failed. So, brothers and sisters, this, these mountains brought with themselves treachery of their own. Think of it. First, you had to contend with the mountain itself, uh, with its steep and narrow paths, loose stones and gravel, and unsure footing. Then you had to contend with the elements. Was it raining? Was it snowing? How windy uh, was it? Think of, of those storms that come through the Mediterranean, which causes the Sea of Galilee to turn from, you know, one moment calm, the next moment, 10-foot waves. What, uh, imagine climbing up the mountains when one of those storms hit, right? Um, so you'd have to contend with the, the rain, the snow, the wind, were the paths wet, slippery, unsure. Then you had to contend with your own uh, fatigue and weaknesses, Brothers and sisters, how long could you right now on that door frame hold your fingers on there until you gave up? Well, what about on your trip to the temple? You come upon this path and you go, oh my, a boulder fell. We, got, we all have to climb over that boulder. Good luck, guys, right? How hard would that be? So you have to uh, contend with your own fatigue, your own uh, failure. And depending on, upon your nutritional uh, that you'd been eating the last three or four months, you could come to that mountain and at times your foot could be shaking, your hands could be shaking, completely weak. All of that would be things you'd have to uh, contend with. And yet what did the Lord of glory promise here? That his care brings stability. He will not allow your foot, okay, regardless of how shaky it might be, to slip. The word in the Hebrew is moat, uh, to slip, Totter, stagger, slide. 
John Carlyle wrote, the foot is by a synecdoche is put for the whole body and the body for the whole outward estate so that he will not suffer thy foot to be moved is he will not suffer thee or thine to be moved or violently cast down. The power of thine oppressors shall not prevail over thee for the power of God sustains thee. Many are striking at thy heels, but they cannot strike them up while God holds thee up. If the, if the will of thine enemies might stand, thou should quickly fall, but God will not suffer thy foot to be moved. Brother and sister, this is this what Habakkuk meant when he wrote, the Lord has made my feet like hinds feet. Habakkuk 3, to walk in its high places. I have my feet as weak as they are because of God's presence in my life in the midst of cancer, trial, difficulty, hardship, want, going without. God enables us, strengthens us, upholds us such that we're not quivering. We have the the back feet of a deer whose design by God is to climb into the high places. That's what we become by grace. So would you notice, brothers and sisters, we have stability from God. But with the first stanza, one through two, the second stanza and the third stanza do it as well. It first declares what God is to us, and then it gives us a description of something about God, a facet of his character that further um, um, establishes the point. And this psalm does it here. So God will not allow our foot to slip. He gives us stability of soul and heart. In spirit, right? Well, how effective is that? Notice with me verse 3b. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, you're never going to believe this. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I find it hard to read this verse without think of, thinking of Elijah and his, his battle with the 450 prophets of Baal. Do you remember that? Baalism was rife with God's people. Elijah felt like the lone uh, prophet. He came to the God's people who were worshiping the Baals and said, we're going to do a competition. Who is the real God, Baal or Yahweh? And he weighed it towards Baal because Baal is the God of thunder and lightning and fire. He said, all right, we're going to make two altars. I'm going to make one. They're going to make one, the 450 prophets. We're going to dice up an ox, stick them on both altars. And then we're going we're to cry out for our God to light the fire. Now, this is Baal at his strength. Well, you know what happened? The 450 prophets of Baal raved and ranted and cut their flesh all day long, and nothing happened. And then Elijah, at the end of the day, in a very humble, uh, weak prayer, said, God, you know, here, da-da-da-da. And his, God you know, lit it up. Well, during this time, do you remember what, what, what Elijah did to the prophets or mocked how he mocked them? He said this, 1 Kings 18. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied, which means in Hebrew he's going to the bathroom. He's gone aside, which means he's off duty. Or he's on a journey, so he's left Palestine, he's, he's someplace far. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. It's that last phrase I want you to focus on. Did you know that in the ancient world it was understood that the gods, they had to explain why the gods at times didn't respond to their prayers. So they uh, concluded, well, because they sleep like we do. So one of the characteristics of an, uh, uh, of an ancient deity is they slept. So, for example, Lupode, you got the quote in your notes, explaining that the uh, Canaanites offered uh, what, why the Canaanites explained, how they explained why the vegetation died. 
quoted, the gods were thought of as having gone off duty or as being asleep for a period. Nicot in the Bible commentary wrote, the sleeping deity is a literary motif found in numerous texts in the ancient Near East. The words of Psalm 121, which state that God will never slumber, stand in sharp contrast to the text accusing God of sleeping and thus not paying attention to the cries of the Psalm of Guys, all the false gods sleep. They go to the bathroom. They go on journeys. And that's why they can be unattentive to um, these false worshippers' cries. That was the explanation. Brothers and sisters, our God does not slumber or sleep. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Psalm 127, we'll, we'll get to it. You know what that means? If God gives to us in our sleep, that means God doesn't sleep. God is caring for us at our most vulnerable times. He never slumbers or sleeps. So his care, his, the stability that he gives us in our walks with God is constant. It'll never go away. It'll never um, um, lapse. It'll never be bad. Boyce wrote, when a person asked the Greek general Alexander the Great how he could sleep soundly when he was surrounded by so much personal danger, he replied that uh, a Parmenio, his faithful guard, was watching. How much more soundly should we sleep when God, who never slumbers nor sleeps, is guarding us? Brothers and sisters, for from of old... They have not heard, nor perceived by ear, nor seen a God like our God who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Study China, uh, 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 Chinese uh, theology. Ch- uh, study the Sumerian gods, the oldest recorded civilization in archaeology. Study Egyptian gods. Study the Mayans. Study, cho- choose the, the, a culture. You'll never find a God who cares for his people like our God. Who doesn't view us as burdens like the false gods of the ancient world or competitors like the false gods of the ancient world. He views us as his children. He loves us and cares for us and stands guard over us. So we're only halfway through, therefore uh, we're we're not through. We'll, We'll pick this up next week. But brothers and sisters, get the the, the flavor of this psalm. Does God care about you? Oh, does he ever. Now, the problem is your your performance-based assumption is, if he cared, he'd take me from my burdens. That's our performance base. Everything within you wants to believe that. You and I must, must allow these songs that we're learning to sing, to sing them, to convince us that our default ideas about God are wrong. Right? We're the creature. He's the uh, creator. We didn't make him. He made us. Therefore, we must allow God's word to tell us and dictate how we think about him. Otherwise, we won't know him. We can't know him. And this psalm comes boldly, strongly says, to any and all who doubt the love or the care of God. Brothers and sisters, don't. Because God has stationed himself right next to you. He upholds you, he cares for you, and stabilizes you. Because he's the, and, and nothing can thwart him because he's the he- maker of the heavens and the earth. Let me quote, uh, close with my last quote here. Asaph wrote in Psalm 73, But as for me, my foot almost slipped. My feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. But the Lord was there to uphold him and bring him peace by granting the wobbly worshiper an eternal God-centered uh, perspective. 
We too may feel like our faith is weakening and our hope decreasing, but the Lord has his grip on his people. We need to cast our burdens on him and trust him. That's the point of this psalm. Cast your burdens on God. He will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege you have given us this morning to open up this incredible psalm and just introduce ourselves really to it, get halfway through, but to see the kind of God that you are, the kind of Savior that you are, that, Lord, you have not left us as, as orphans, as you said in John, but, Lord, you have, you have come to us, you're with us always, and in and through all things, you are working everything in our lives together for good that we might love you and serve you and know you when we enter into the new Jerusalem. Father God, we, we pray this furtively. Work your work of grace. I think of C.S. Lewis's comments that he's paid us the compliment of loving us, which means he's going to discipline us. Lord, thank you for this glorious compliment of loving us. But give us the grace, O oh Lord, to take with it all that that means to willingly lay our hearts, our lives before you, whether it be with the loss of a job, the loss of life, the loss of health, to say, oh God, here I am. Use me according to your purpose and your will. God, teach us to sing this song, put this new song in our mouths. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.